Welcome, everybody, to Recovery Machine. We're back after the break and somewhere in between Christmas and New Year's. We're both feeling a little slower than usual here, probably from tons and tons of sugar, I would imagine. That's what it is. (laughs) Sugar and no exercise, but uh, we're going to do our best here today. So it's me, Nathan, again, and uh, joined, as always, by co-host Corey. How are you doing, Corey? Good morning. Good morning. I'm doing well. You know, to our credit, Nathan, this is one of our, the earliest sessions we've ever uh, mm. met for. So we That's cut ourselves true. a little slack there. It's yeah. 10 o'clock Pacific time. So, um, but yeah, it's good to see you. You, you had a good, uh, good, good Christmas break. And uh, yeah, so what we're going to do today, we're going to do something a little bit different. You know, we often talk about books that we're reading, talk about it with each other, talk about it in meetings. Um, and we thought it would be kind of a fun idea to highlight a few of the books that we read and were impacted by, particularly early on in, in our recovery um, that we think might be helpful that we think, you know, could uh, our listeners, whether or not you are in the position that we were in that, that it could be beneficial to you in your life. Um, We also, you know, when we were first talking about this, I I wanted to set the challenge for you that if we're going to do this, that means no Gabor Mate. That means no Maya Salovitz, no Carl Hart, none of the sort of the big names that you would expect. Because I would, I would assume that a lot of our readers, ha- or a lot of our listeners, have read some of those people. Those people are wonderful. But let's sort of see what else we can we can dig up. You know. Okay, I forgot that we were talking uh, about uh, leaving out those ones. Uh, and Did I you? have, <laughs> I, <laughs> that's okay. I have, uh, I have one that I am currently reading actually suggested by our friend Peter over in, uh, Ontario. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, it was a great suggestion. It's brand new, hot off the press. Um, and, uh, I could discuss that one instead. Okay. If you're sure, then, uh, then yeah, let's go for it. Yeah. I, well, I think I'll have to at least mention how this works as far as uh, I've got it in kind of a impact order here, but uh, okay, I will uh, adjust on the fly. Okay. So would you, uh, you, you can choose, do you want to start or do you want to pass? <laughs> <laughs> I, I could start. Um, my, the, the first one I chose is addiction, a disorder of choice. And that one is by Gene M. Heyman. It's one of the first books that I ran into when uh, I I started to, uh, most of my problems occurred and began in in 2011. And then once I realized that uh, a lot of the information I was getting from professionals and and, uh, experts seemed to be misleading or contradictory, and uh, it was then that I decided, well, let's learn as much as I can about this and maybe I can figure out some of my, my own way through it. So his book, addiction, it's a disorder of choice uh, right here. That's the guy for the video people. It's, I think it's about a dozen years old now, something like that. But the reason it was important for me is because it was the first time that I saw somebody put together what appears to be bigger, uh, a bigger collection of studies, studies that are higher powered um, and less, 
less suspect than the ones many of the, like say the DSM-5 uses a certain kind of standard to define addiction. And then it goes on to sort of back that standard up as far as uh, its, its ability or its power to diagnose individuals by using studies that are mostly, if not all, taken from people who have been in treatment or sought out treat them themselves. So they, mm. that right there is actually the sticking point because they use that data and then extrapolate from that to the whole population. And I don't believe that that was, I, I don't think it was meant as a, uh, to obfuscate the facts. I just, I, I don't think the data was available at the time that uh, even during the, the last the latest version of the DSM-5. Um, I could be wrong about that. But regardless, what I found in this book was that this idea of uh, powerlessness, where, you know, you go to, to, when I went to treatment, it was, it was there were several things that I had uh, uh, trouble with, but one of them was the fact that I was being told that I had no power over the situation. Mm -hmm. And that just didn't make sense to me for multiple reasons why I was there. At the same time, I knew there was a compost, there was a uh, compulsory component to being addicted to drugs. Something had happened in my ability to control the situation. That was true. But at the same time, I was still able to make decisions. So yeah. I was in that gray area without any information. And this was the first time I came along and saw Oh wow, this guy is actually he's he's done an excellent job of putting together he, like he he points out four huge studies in particular that demonstrate that by far the most uh likely scenario for somebody who is having trouble with drugs or alcohol is that they remit. And it's not a remitting relapsing situation. It's usually most people in their 20s and 30s uh, that's when the, the majority of these problems happen. Mm -hmm. And once they've uh, addressed whatever motivating factor was involved, or maybe they've moved on and they have new life responsibilities that are putting pressure on them. They don't have the time to maybe party as much as before, whatever it may be. They don't stay in that same addictive behavior pattern. They find a way out of it. Mm -hmm. And the vast, vast majority do it without treatment or any intervention at all. And it's not even close. It's it's about 75% across the board if you want to take every every substance that people normally have problems with. Uh, you know, going as far as like uh, alcohol, cannabis, and then up towards the harder drugs. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that was the that was the impact it had. It what it did is it it made me believe that I wasn't completely crazy and that maybe there was more to this than I was being told. It's not a, what, uh, what we had planned on doing here was uh, reading a quote after the introduction of the book. In this one, it's, it's a pretty technical book. There's not a lot in here that's uh, going to be nice prose for a quote. So what I would recommend people do is even if they want to take a quick look uh, and just go over the uh, graphs, that's what I would uh, I would point people towards that. It's absolutely worth the read. And 
if you haven't seen or aren't aware of how much of a disparity there is between what mainstream medicine says about the condition of addiction and and what these bigger, more representative studies that uh, were done around 2000 to 2010 ish. Um, if you're not aware of what they're saying, I would highly recommend that you you check this book out. So it's addiction, a disorder of choice. It's not a long read, but it's a bit of a slow read because uh, you know, depending on your ability to kind of sort through trials mm-hmm. and studies. But uh, yeah, an excellent book. And I think that if you look at most of the authors after Gene M. Heyman, they will have him listed as a, uh, a reference in their titles. So that's, uh, that's the first one I wanted to mention. I wanted to ask you, Nathan, you met, I mean, you mentioned that book in, I think, the, your introductory episode, or maybe even my introductory episode. It was in, within the first two or three episodes of our, of our podcast, you, you mentioned that book. At what point were you, had you already been to inpatient treatment? And did you read that book after? After the uh, fact, it was after, yeah, yeah, because uh, it was the when I came out of treatment, I was pretty disorientated, and I, I, I needed to know if, you know, if what they were saying was true in treatment, then my entire kind of, uh, like, I had to make large scale adjustments to many kind of ways that I'd viewed the situation before, mm-hmm. and I needed to make large scale adjustments anyway. So it would have been. I think it would have kicked my legs out from me a little harder had I not been able to dig into this stuff and see that, oh, okay, it's not it's not that black and white at all. It's quite mm-hmm. subtle. And many people are struggling to, you know, find a definition, even a workable definition for a diagnosis of addiction. So it gave me some hope is what it did. Mm-hmm. That conversation about powerlessness, I mean, we could go on and on about that. And it, and it, of course, the 12 step model is, is deeply rooted in, in that notion of, of, of kind of admitting powerlessness, but, and if, if people grapple with that and they, and it, and it works for them fair enough, but like, uh, again, it's, it's such a vulnerable time. And like you said, when you were in, in that inpatient treatment center, without having read that book, without having kind of been validated about, about what was going on with you or see, getting that clarity. It's like, you're, you're vulnerable. You're looking for some answers. And I think a lot of people would probably just accept that as face at face value. And yeah, yeah. And a lot did, but there were others there who had already kind of been down the path and they could see that it was a lot of it was kind of bullshit, right. Or just answers that were, here's an easy answer for you. And if you ask any questions, you're not, yeah. you're not going to get any further information. In fact, you're going to get uh, shut down for relapse behavior. Yeah. So that was a, that was, I mean, maybe if, if the facilitators in that place had been a little more forthcoming or willing to talk about why they thought that that was the, the case, and it may be the case for them that they felt entirely powerless and, I believe that there is something to be said for people who have problems with alcohol, particularly because it's the, the nature of it is that it goes after your ability to make a judgment call immediately. So I think it's, it, it does have an element of powerlessness to it. That is maybe a little greater than some of the other ones in a different kind of way. If you under, you know, if you can follow that. 
I do. And in fact, one of the, my second book that I will talk about today very much supports sort of the same conversation and like how, how the way we think about an issue or, or a problem that we're having or an addiction directly impacts our behavior around it and, and how we, how we face it, you know, so our, our thinking and our language are, are instrumental, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. So what was your, uh, I think you're going in the same kind of uh, chronological or or impact order as I am. Yeah, chronological order for me too. So when when I encountered each of these books, um, and the first book is a is I don't want to say it's simple, but it's it's um, it's not a sort of a heavy science based statistical book. It's it's Embers by Richard Wagamese, and holy smokes! I mean, there's so much I can say about this book. So first of all, it was about um, a month into, not even a month, I don't think, into being off work and I'm sitting at home and I've got, you know, nothing but time on my hands and I'm just, you know, wringing my hands in uncertainty and just really distressed and stressed. And my, my cousin, Jane, shout out to Jane from uh, Ontario, um, sent me this book in the mail and Richard Wagamese is a, a was a, um, an indigenous Canadian author and poet. Um, he wrote for the TV show North of 60. He wrote uh, the book called Indian Horse, which then became a, a movie, which is actually on Netflix, I think. And he wrote these poetry books. And what it did for me, and I, I'll read you one or two examples. At that time when my mind was so busy and so filled with uncertainty and so filled with worry, and particularly at nighttime, I've talked about this, that for me, nighttime, when, you know, the lights are off and it's silent in my place, that's the most difficult time for me. Particularly, it was the most difficult time um, early on. And that's when my mind would race and I I just, I could just get carried away. And I hadn't learned all of the tools and ways to kind of get myself grounded. So I really found being able to put my attention towards something short and simple and like digestible, that if I was feeling anxious or feeling stressed that would just ground me and center me that did a lot for me like a like a piece of music or a familiar song could or like a you know watching a certain show that kind of just like brings you back to zero but but because richard wagamese had lived experience um with addiction with a very difficult challenging life that's the perspective that he's speaking from someone who's been through the mud mm. and and gain some some peace. Richard also, by the way, was from lived in Kamloops, British Columbia. So, oh, crazy! Um, a relatively local local person for us. And um, yeah, it was just really beautiful, and it was stuff that I could like kind of mull over and and read and reread. Um, a couple of these things I've read in my smart recovery meetings. I think I read one of them in uh, in our caduceus meeting once. And yeah, so I'll, I'll read you one here and they're just, they're very, they're all very, very short and, and extremely, extremely sweet. And, uh, this book embers is broken into little, little passages about stillness, harmony, trust, reverence, persistence, gratitude, and joy, which are okay. interesting values to sort of reflect upon. So this one goes like this. Watching morning break, I realize again that darkness doesn't kill the light. It defines it. I believe that now. For years, I didn't. 
I believed that it was my failures, mistakes, misjudgments, shortcomings, and wrongs. But I'm not those things. I am the light that shines from my faith, my courage, my willingness to be vulnerable and to be responsible and to be accountable. Moments of darkness only highlight that truth these days. I'm moving beyond my shame. I'm basking in the light of my own recovery and the brilliance that comes from allowing myself to be seen as I am, warts and all. I'm not just those warts either. I'm the frog who wears them, gradually becoming the prince. So that's that. And I guess I'll ask you first, how does that, how does that hit you? Well, it's a pretty remarkable uh, piece of writing there, just uh, for me personally, because he's he's talking about vulnerability, uh, he's talking about faith. Uh, these are things that uh, those are two of my primary tenets. That the, especially the the vulnerability one came later, but it mm-hmm. was it was tied into accepting the darkness and actually seeking it out sometimes in mm-hmm. in some ways and realizing that we don't just grow in the light. Uh, in fact, the biggest leaps sometimes are made in the darkness and it, it caused, I think of him reconciling this reality as a place that is designed to facilitate struggle. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a way to embrace it that is hopefully not overwhelming and doesn't end in, I mean, there is such a thing as struggling too hard, right? If somebody ends yep. their life because they're they're trapped in the darkness and they can't see their way out, obviously that's, you know, you can get esoteric about it, but for our purposes, I think that we would call that a, a tragedy. But uh, from my experience, it's been, you know, there's two ways to look at that. And there's, if we try to take it as something that we're going to spend a lot of time fighting against, as in, I don't want to be a bad person. I don't want to think about the things that I did wrong. I don't want to, I want to distance myself from the darker sides of myself and only focus on the good and the, you know, the more noble aspects of me. And um, there's many traps in there. And uh, it, it mm-hmm. seems that, that he's kind of trying to articulate his growth in, in, in that process and, and his increase in understanding and maybe seeing himself as more of a whole and seeing the world as more of a, let's see, of course it's more nuanced, but it's not as simple as just, you know, gritting and grinding it your way through and trying yeah. to always do the right thing. I think yeah. it's about staying open and seeing yourself as, uh, I mean, we're all flawed beings, but that's the, that's kind of the point you know, yeah. and, and maybe that's what he was driving at there. Yeah, I agree. And in, for anyone who is, has experienced um, starting out and having to attend a meeting, like a, a, any kind of support group, a recovery support group or a 12 step meeting or a grief support, anything like that. It's terrifying those first few times. And you think I'm going to have to, you're hearing people tell their stories and you think, Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to, I've got to like, how much do I have to tell here? And, and at first, I think typically from my experience and what I've observed is that people are, you know, tell a very kind of guarded version of their story or what they're comfortable with initially. And then as, as they get more comfortable, maybe they share more and they open up. And I think the really 
special thing about those communities can happen when um, when people look at their vulnerabilities, look at their again shortcomings. That he's he's sort of redefining them as not being he's not owned by his failures. He's he's growing out of them and and remodeling. And mm-hmm. uh, and when you can see that happening in a in a community, and when the other members of the community are, are supporting the person who's who's being vulnerable in that, it's just there's nothing like it that I've ever experienced before. And um, that's where I think like everyone should be a needs to be a part of a community. That's just such a basic human need and a community that hears them and and where they can be that vulnerable. And I I wish I it didn't take me into sort of coming through addiction and coming out the other side to, to learn that. But that's the one of the most beautiful things that I've learned in this. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. It's something that's completely missing from our mainstream kind of way of living here in the West. Yeah. We uh, just, you know, it's the individualistic uh, achievement style. I don't need anybody to, to win kind of attitude. And I don't know. Yeah. We've lost it for quite a while. But when you see it working, like you said, I mean, when you get a group that has gotten to that point where everybody knows that everybody's on this on the same page, mm-hmm. and there's there's a level of openness there that probably not a lot of people experience. You know, maybe oh, yeah. if they're lucky, they would experience it with their spouse or their best friend type of thing. But other than that, and even those people might not understand if it's something that's, you know, emotionally significant or you know, one of those experiences that you have to go through to understand. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, that's uh that's a great one, man. I like it. A little it. bit different. Thank you. What you got for number two? Well, I'm, what I'm going to do here is I'm just going to give a, uh, I'm going to give a quick hat tip to Maya because we all know how I feel about her and that, uh, you know, <laughs> I have a shrine and all that kind of stuff. No, I don't have a shrine, but she's uh, <laughs> I don't have a shrine folks. She's a, uh, she's a genius is what she is. She's yeah. a legitimate genius and unbroken brain may have saved my life. So I can't, and I don't know if that's, I honestly don't know how dramatic I'm being there because I was, I was way into, uh, I had, you know, gotten to a point where it's very isolated, very, alone and uh when you get down into the darkness like that she was her book on broken brain a revolutionary new way of understanding addiction was the one that uh and i've talked about it many times and i, mm-hmm. I still smile thinking about the fact that we actually had her on the show mm-hmm. what an amazing experience and so grateful <laughs> it's just one of the coolest things ever but um yeah i'll just read a uh uh uh, well, I'll say first that what she did is she made me understand in a way that nobody else, she put together a cohesive piece of writing that shows you definitively what is going on in your brain. And mm-hmm. that's what I wanted to know. It made sense. It was backed up by science and it was just beautifully written. If you haven't read that book and you're wondering what's going on with, uh, you want to see somebody who understands addiction on a deep level, I've said it before, but you got to read Unbroken Brain. I'll read just a, a little bit here. Please. Fundamentally, addiction is a learning disorder. There are three critical elements to it. The behavior has a psychological purpose. The specific learning pathways involved make it become nearly automatic and compulsive, and it doesn't stop when it is no longer adaptive. 
So she takes those three and goes wide open on them and backs them up. And the, but that's the the bones of it. Since the experience of having her on and and all everything we've done there, and with that little piece there, is that is that something that's evolving? Is it something that uh, you know? What's your thoughts on that, Corey? Well, she's answering the question there that so many, particularly loved ones of someone with addiction, ask like. Why can't they just stop? And why a question that why many people in in active addiction ask themselves? Like we I we knew we knew that it wasn't working for us. Like in the in the large scheme of things, that it was no longer a, an effective adaptation. It was for a period of time, in terms of like that getting through that acute stress or whatever it was, whatever was happening in our heads. But then. I could certainly see that like, this is no longer an effective behavior for, for me to pursue, but like, why can't I change that? So that's what she's exploring there and, and answering. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's, uh, <laughs> if you don't have that, that piece of understanding of the puzzle, then I think what happens is you become, you're just, you don't have a foundation on which to stand against many of these wild ideas that that get tossed around and backed up over the years without any any science and ideas that don't make a lot of sense intuitively you know you think about it and you're like well it's not exactly like that you know mm -hmm. that's that doesn't really define it for me or there's more to it that's not being discussed how come we can't discuss it further you know and that's what she does yep. she's this is a you know a a brilliant mind that goes deep after experiencing, you know, being chronically and compulsively addicted to cocaine and uh, heroin, and then, mm -hmm. you know, figures it all out in rapid, <laughs> a crazy fast period of time, uh, and then uh, is able to, I mean, the amount of her volume, her output of writing on the subject matter is staggering. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, amazing woman. So that's, uh, that's my hat tip to her. And yeah, I'm sorry. I, I don't, uh, we probably talked about not having the, the regular books in there, but <laughs> that's okay. Do you want to do your, your, another one too? Yeah, I can, uh, I'll, I'll finish, I'll do my next one and then I'm going to, I'll talk briefly about the one I'm reading now. Okay, cool. Yeah. So we'll move it back to you, sir. Okay. So mine is a, another another curveball sort of um in that it's not about addiction it's not about recovery but it is a, about uh, about our brains and that's what we ultimately what we're trying to answer here uh and it's it's the whole brain child by dan siegel and tina payne bryson dan siegel's a very well-known um psychologist and child psychologist and has written a number of really sort of um instrumental parenting books and you're, you're going to say, well, why, why are we talking about a parenting book here, <laughs> Corey? <laughs> well, I read this um, fairly early on in recovery. And then my, one of my counselors was, um, had recommended it to me as well. So, I mean, in short, the whole brain child, it's, it's, he's, he's talking about four children, how the, you know, the pathway between right and left brain um, is underdeveloped and between lower and higher brain is is underdeveloped so when a child gets into the state of um of emotional distress or stress they aren't able to regulate that and uh and they go from you know from the basement to the upstairs <laughs> you 
you know, rapidly. And so the idea is that you, you sort of take them out of that environment, help them to kind of recenter and to calm down before the, you know, the lesson is taught or before the behavior changes. Where it applied to me was Dan Siegel talks about the wheel of awareness and, and the, he uses the term mind sight. So if you imagine uh, your awareness, all of the things in your life that you, that you put your attention towards, your career, your family, being off of work, your addictive behavior, your money stress, your diet and exercise, any of those things, grief, those are around the outside of the wheel. And then on the inside of the wheel is your, is sort of your, your mind where you are. It's the hub as he calls it. And so if you're always pointing to your addictive behavior or your, how much you hate your damn job and your boss and your anxiety or your symptoms of PTSD or your symptoms of depression, that, that in, of course changes how your, your mind, how your perspective on the middle um, is impacted. And so that in fact, we require a much more balanced wheel of perspective and, and need to ensure that we are putting our attention onto things that also create some balance and that create, give us a, a perspective of, of better health. So, and this is where, you know, thinking about recovery, um, recovery burnout is a common, a common term that I, I have heard. It's something that I felt probably in the first two months where it was like, you have to go to, you know, because you're in the monitoring agreement, you have to go to what works out to be four meetings a week plus therapy, plus a rehab program for some people. It's a, it's a lot. Like all of your attention <laughs> is, <laughs> is on your addictive behavior and on your work stress and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's trying to get you healthier, but it's not creating a, a particularly balanced perspective. And it can be pretty dark and get kind of pretty, pretty gloomy. And it's not necessarily all, it's not, not looking at the total picture. And so for me, it it helped me to sort of see that, um, you know, we do, there's the life balance wheel where you, where you can like see how much time you're giving and how satisfied you are with your, with your job or with your home or with your family life or your, your romantic life, whatever. But this is just about sort of how much time being aware of how much time and perspective you're giving to each of these things. Yeah. It was a really helpful reminder for, for me. And then I think it also really affirmed for me that like a kid who's having a tantrum in the grocery store, sometimes you got to take them out of the grocery store. Sometimes you got you to take them out of the playground and, and move them aside. And I think it affirmed for me that like taking myself out of that environment was, was so necessary. Yeah. And not because, not because my work or my employer insisted on it, but because that was what was going to allow me to recenter and re-regulate and, and, um, and feel better. Yeah. Yeah. When you put it like that, it sounds uh, almost ridiculous that that's not the, <laughs> not the immediate solution. Eh? <laughs> it, it does. It does. And you know, there's also, I was trying to think of what part to read and I encourage everyone to look up, look up his wheel, wheel of awareness. And there are diagrams online that, that where you can find it and, and look look at it more closely. But he also talks about distinguishing between feel and am. And he's talking about teaching this to children, the difference mm-hmm. between I am feeling sad versus I am sad. Right. And this comes back to 
as adults, there's, we have a lot to learn about that, about like how our language impacts our being. And if, and we can catch ourselves using that type of language a lot where it's like, I am, I am an addict, for example. And, and what that, what that impact is Mm -hmm. versus just the current state that we're in saying that you, I am this creates like this permanence and this, yeah, and it's we've seen sort of self-defining, self-fulfilling kind of a thing. Absolutely, yeah. The science so talking, is there to back it up too. He, he's talking about um, a child named Josh. Josh is sort of the example in this chapter. Josh's suffering was a result of being stuck on the rim of the wheel of awareness, rather than perceiving the world from his hub, so the center, and integrating his many the many points of the, his rim. He directed all of his attention towards just a few particular rim points that created an anxious and critical state of mind. As a result, he lost touch with many of the other parts of the rim that would help him experience a more peaceful and accepting state of mind. This is what happens when kids aren't working from an integrated wheel. Just like adults, they can quickly become stuck on certain rim points or a few particular aspects of their being, which often leads to rigidity or chaos. It leaves them confusing the difference between feel and am. When a child experiences a particular state of mind, as a feeling of frustration or loneliness, they may be tempted to define themselves based on that temporary experience, as opposed to understanding that simply how they are in that moment. The danger is that a temporary state of mind can be perceived as a permanent part. The state becomes seen as a trait that defines us. And it goes on there. So I think there's a lot for adults in general to learn about that, but a lot of people in recovery to learn about that too, that we, we kind of can take on this identity based on the language that we use. That is a, a brilliant uh, way to set the system up there uh, as far as trying to, I, I, I mean, I, I don't know what kids are capable of as far as making that connection because many adults are, are unable to, you know, get to that point where they can see that there's something outside of them that's that's happening and then reduce it down to a, a, a sort of core that is being affected by these things due to, a, you know, I don't know, um, it's more of a management issue at its core, right? Yeah. And I, yeah, that's part of growing up, but many, like, again, because we've lost our, I think it has to do with community and our maybe having a practice of meditation, a daily meditation would increase your ability to be aware of, of the difference between what you are in the center or the the hub, I guess, as he's saying, as opposed to out on the rim there. Yeah. It's also interesting because it speaks to the loss of awareness that happens when we get in that dark place. Mm -hmm. So if you were anxious or angry and that's the the last feeling that you had as you retreated inwards towards that hub as the darkness you could kind of think of it as a flashlight against a wall and the beam is getting narrower and narrower or like a bullseye even where the darkness yeah. is is creeping in kind of section by section until you're just in your hub and because there's nothing else all your options all your things that would balance you out all your uh, points on the rim, like he's saying there, that would be your your normal kind of anchors or way to climb back out of the darkness are now you're blinded to them. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting tool. I'm going to have to look at that. 
so two thoughts I had, I, I re- recall what I was trying to say a moment ago was that going back to the, the language of powerlessness and to say, I am powerless. Yeah, it's brutal, right? And it, it really does sort of fulfill that state of being and, um, and isn't particularly helpful. I am, I feel when I am having an urge or a craving, I feel powerless. Yeah. But I am not powerless to me is a, a healthier way to, to say it. Uh, and the other thought I had, Nathan, was when we are drug seeking or when we are having a craving or, or feeling anxious and looking for relief, we tell ourselves in that moment that the, that the drug of choice will take us out of it. It'll take us to a different place. But if you think about the wheel of awareness, to me, the, the drug is right next to uh, anxiety and trauma and, and all of these harmful, scary, shitty feelings that I had. So they, they were intertwined. So it's, it was not a different perspective that I was actually attaining. I think I, I thought that it was a different part of the wheel. For me, at least, they became so conjoined and so intertwined that that it, I was always pointed towards the same thing. I was always pointed towards that uh, stress and anxiety and 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 angst and dissatisfaction. Yeah, you turned. That's what we do, I guess, when we're when we're in that state and you're using that drug in a not how that drug is supposed to be used. It causes a. It almost makes a shadow effect where now you've retreated back into the darkness and you're, you're oscillating between uh, anxiety, depression, fear, whatever it is, and that, and your drug of choice. Mm-hmm. And you can see how that pattern would develop. And then once you're locked in, you can't see your way out of it because all your, all your other access points is, are blinded. Right. And that yeah. you can see that play out time and time again. Yes. It's also interesting because you can see how it's not to just the drug, right? The drug can be taken out of the equation. That's why you can have these different addictive behaviors. It's the way it's your relationship with that behavior pattern that sets up that kind of oscillation and then cuts off the rest of your, your normal anchor points to whatever makes you feel good. So it, I mean, it would explain why, like so many people can can use drugs like cocaine or or even heroin recreationally because they didn't go into the relationship with those that with that kind of a dynamic yeah right they probably went into the relationship with with all their they were in a healthy place they you know they they experience whatever the drug is for you know whatever positives it has to offer and then don't retreat back into the the middle and 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 just sit there and wait for the drug again. They just yeah. go back to their business. Yeah, you know, I, it's very interesting. Yeah, it's like it's like <laughs> to 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 make a pop culture reference. It's like why did why did heroin kill Kurt Cobain and not Keith Richards? Well, their all of their life experience that led them up to being you know, rock and roll stars impacted that. And the, 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 the psychology, the psychological groundwork that was laid before they got to that place impacted the relationship with drugs. Keith Richards was, and still he, not that he's using drugs now, but he, he was having the time of his life. He was, he isn't, 
I don't. I don't think Keith is. He was having the time of his life, and Kurt Cobain was was medicating for his pain. He was. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, I mean, that's a that's a very like sort of simple example of that. But yeah. but you're so tr- so right. Yeah. Yeah. No. It's it's interesting. There's there's a lot of thought uh, thought experiments that could be taken out of that for sure. Yeah. That's a really cool. Uh, real cool introduction there, man. Cool. So what else have you got here for us? Well, what I wanted to uh, definitely present as something that people should take a, (laughs) it's not something that you're going to take a quick look at, but the perennial philosophy by Aldous Huxley is, I I mean, I got to say that it's the most amazing book I've ever read. I mean, that's, that's all there is to it. I, I don't know how I'm going to find a book that's more amazing than that. And I, I, I mean, I've, I've went through the Bible with a fine tooth comb, uh, read it front to back and studied it. Same with the Quran. Um, there's lots more religious texts that, uh, uncanical books and stuff like that. And it, not that religious books are, are necessarily going to be your most, most earth shattering. But what I'm saying is that in the grand scheme of everything, as far as what's going on here, um, uh, having a spiritual foundation, a spiritual understanding of of the common threads between the different major religions in the world and belief systems, things that stand the test of time, you know, going back thousands of years, things that can be used as uh, points of reference now and wisdom that just is never going to go away in this reality because it, I believe that a lot of the, the the points that are whatever you want to call it elucidated or 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 made accessible by Huxley in this book, they're pieces that you can take, read it maybe three, four, or five times on different occasions, and then on the on uh, the sixth or seventh time, you know you're like, holy shit! Okay, I I understand, and now I understand something a thread of truth that is far beyond anything that uh, I've ever been able to, to gain from reading a book. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a miraculous piece of work. And um, it's one of those things that you could just have laying there, open it up anywhere, start reading. And I mean, it's gonna, you'll be thinking about it for the rest of the day. So I'm going to, I've got a, a, a piece here that, speaks towards uh, my epiphany with charity and uh, my understanding of humility and uh, and uh, uh, tranquility and disinterest uh, with material possessions and desires of this world and yeah so I'll read it here it's I, w- <laughs> I was gonna edit it down for you a little bit because it's uh, a little long but uh, here goes the distinguishing marks of charity are, disinterestedness, tranquility, and humility. But where there is disinterestedness, there is neither greed for personal advantage nor fear for personal loss or punishment. Where there is tranquility, there is neither craving nor aversion, but a steady will to conform to the divine teo or logos on every level of existence, and a steady awareness of the divine suchness and what should be one's own relation to it. 
where there is humility, there is no censoriousness and no glorification of the ego. You just are. Or any projected alter ego at the expense of others who are recognized as having the same weaknesses and faults, but also the same capacity for transcending them in the unit of knowledge of God as one has oneself. And God there is obviously up for interpretation, but I feel that there's a, they're talking about a certain flow. Like I like that logos word in that it's, it speaks towards the connectivity of all living beings, maybe everything that's, that exists in this reality. And then kind of gives you some accountability for, you know, treating people well and understanding really why that that matters on a grand scale but uh, i know that was that was super long and uh, some crazy crazy words in there but uh, what are your thoughts sir so is he suggesting essentially that we are our own enemy and that if we can get ourselves out of the way and get our psychology out of the way that that is where that is where the virtue lies is that in essence what he's that, saying that is a huge part of it this is where like uh, buddhists and uh yeah uh well buddhists are that's probably the, the best example of that they speak of this complete ego death same with uh, people who've experienced uh i don't know if you uh how much uh, psychogenic like uh, mushrooms and lsd and stuff like that you've experienced but i have been to that place where there is I, I had an experience once where I was stripped down to this. Uh, I watched the layers of myself fall away uh, over a period of about eight hours. It was a uh, Ibogaine experience. And I don't think I'll maybe, <laughs> maybe again, I'll find the courage to, to, uh, to face that place again. But I've never had an experience where it was so obvious what was going on and that you can, mm. when you could see those layers fall off and see all these different kind of masks that you wear to uh, the lies that you tell, the exaggerations, the nonsense, all these things that you think matter, uh, you watch them fall away to the point where you think you're going to die because you think you need all of those little things to to continue in this world. And it reduced me to this just pillar of, uh, it was like a, just light, I guess, just a pillar of light. And I felt that that pillar of light was connected to what they call in this book, the divine ground. And this might, you know, I realize here that I'm starting to sound a little bit out there for some people, that's fine. <laughs> but what, what it seemed to me was happening there is if you picture, um, say a, uh, a big piece of ground with icicles sticking up. That, to me, felt like my connection with other living things. I was one of those points of light that was embedded into that divine ground, and the divine ground went on forever. Mm -hmm. And that, that material there I, is, during that experience, it was a representation of our nature here as that individual form being connected to our our nature everywhere here and then somewhere else also that was actually generating that divine ground 
So it goes off in every direction. And then at some point you realize that there's a, a dimension, uh, dimension to it that you can feel is attached to it, but you can't really see it here in the way that we think of seeing. And, um, this speaks to that, I think. And when you talk about mm -hmm. taking yourself out of the equation, I mean, it's, it's, it's perfect. You know, when you, if you can remove all the nonsense and realize how connected we all are to one another and to, to what feels like something else as well, like maybe something that was involved in the creation of this reality or maybe some kind of a force, whatever this logos thing is, that's uh, and I don't care. I don't, uh, I don't need to know what that is. That was the other lesson there. I'm just fine with it. I'm fine that it, it's, it's given me an understanding that makes me, it's given me the ability to, to act lovingly towards mm -hmm. other people, mm -hmm. not feel love, not feel like, uh, how come I don't feel love for other people? It, that's not, that's not the only form of love. In fact, it's one of the lower forms of love. It's that ability to understand that you have the act, you have the ability to act and cultivate love as a, uh, as an action towards other people. Mm -hmm. And you, it's very hard to do that. If you're holding on to all that, like you said, getting in your own way with all that kind of extra stuff, that's nonsense, mm -hmm. you know, it's okay. We all do it, but to see it for what it is, I think gives you a much better foundation to work with moving forward. So when did you, I mean, you came to the, this most recent, um, the, our, the epiphany episode that we did about charity, but when did you encounter Huxley and how did, you know, did the, the experience that you're speaking of with Ibogaine, did that come before Huxley or what's the chronology <laughs> there? I'm curious. Well, if you go back to my original story there in episode two, mm -hmm. I think I mentioned, um, I was staying at my friend's place. I was in a real bad spot. And I, I probably referred to it as a dream or something. Yeah. And um, <laughs> the reason I did that was because I wasn't clear on, I, I hadn't made up my mind as to whether it would be beneficial for people who are listening to this to know what really happened there, or if it was enough for people to just know that I had some sort of an awakening or a, an epiphany and what what I had decided to do there because I was basically in a corner and I was in the, in the hub of darkness and yeah. felt that I, I didn't have options. And I reached out to somebody because I'd researched Ibogaine as a, uh, a molecule. It's, I believe it's an African, I think it's a, a tree in Africa and um, they use it for religious ceremonies and stuff like that over there. And one of the, one of the trademark things about it that I, I wasn't told this until I experienced it, but there's a drum beat that goes on in the background, the whole experience. And at first I thought it was my heart. And then when the thing starts going like, you're like, Oh shit, I'm going to die. Right. And then you realize, mm -hmm. oh, okay, no, it's not that it's something else. And there's no explanation for whatever that is. And anybody out there um, who has been to there's Ibogaine treatment centers in yes. South America. Um, so people 
some people have had amazing results with just basically walking into these places while actively addicted to heroin, for example, and then walking out and just giving up heroin. And I, I didn't believe that that was possible. I thought it was, you know, sounded pretty over the top, but I, I tried this stuff and I understand now why I, I, I see what the mechanism of action would be if you want to talk <laughs> in pharmacological terms. Mm -hmm. um, and what it does is it just, it takes away all the nonsense. So it shows you so, and in a fashion of, like, I mean, I've done LSD. I'm fairly experienced with uh, like psilocybin and stuff like that. But this was a different level of, of hallucination and it was a different different level of experience in that i i couldn't say for sure whether i was going to live or die so there was a lot of fear there and nobody had known that i'd taken this stuff so i you know it's theoretically possible that i could have died but and it was long like it was eight to twelve hours i can't tell or remember for sure but oh my I, god it was long and uh when i came out of it I just, I kind of snapped too. And I was like, holy, sh all this stuff I'm doing is so stupid. What am I doing? Mm -hmm. I'm not telling my parents about what's going on, but kind of, they love me. Why wouldn't I do this? So I immediately went and called my parents and told them exactly wow. what was going on. Wow. Yeah. And then I, was like, I looked at these things that I was doing and, and I was just like, this is, it's got to, this is enough. This is enough. It's got to stop. We got to. These things that you think you care about are, yes, they're real and they're meaningful and they have some application, but on the grand scale, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Ridiculous. Yeah. You're basically killing yourself for money. That's what you're doing, Nathan. Mm -hmm. Is that what mm -hmm. you want to do? Or do you think that's fair to your parents? Do you think that's fair to the people that love you? Come on, get your head out of your ass, buddy. Yeah. Do something about this, right? Yeah. So that's what it did was it just, it, it made it so that there was no more argument back and forth in my head. Should I do this or should I do that? It just was go do it. Yeah. So wow. you can, yeah, you could tag whatever kind of uh, value you want to that. And um, I will say that it definitely, I'm glad that I had the experience. You can't approach those type of, of whatever you want to call them, plant medicine, pharmacological agents, I, I believe they are due a, a tremendous amount of respect. I believe they're tools that could be used to, you know, in my situation, it gave me, it got me out of that hub and open. It's put light everywhere, right? It was mm -hmm. just a flash of light far beyond the rim of what, you know, so you could see out in every direction and you're looking and, and you're exposed in the darkness and there's nothing left, but whatever that white core or bright thing we are in the middle, that's all that was left. And then what's the argument, you know, mm -hmm. it's just stop being silly and, uh, you know, get some help. Yeah. I, I guess what I'm trying to say here is I, I don't necessarily endorse that as a, it, I don't know what would happen for people or listeners. You know, if you're if you're thinking of doing something like that, please uh, do it with somebody who knows what they're doing. And I wouldn't mm -hmm. recommend doing it alone. 
Uh, same with ayahuasca, DMT, any of these types of things. And my God, don't go in there thinking that you're going to have some, it's not a recreational situation and please don't take that. I don't believe that's what it's for at all. So yeah, if you go in there with a heavy ego, it will beat you down. Tear yeah. that off. And yeah, that is a hard experience to stomach. So you had that experience and then did in reading Huxley, who's a pretty notorious and famous for his, you know, being such a um, sort of a founding father of, of psychedelics and, and of um, writing about it for sure. And influenced, you know, Timothy Leary and Jim Morrison and all of Ram these people. Das. Ram Dass. Um, when you found Aldous Huxley, did you, did it kind of click like, holy smokes, I've been there. I know what this guy's saying. Oh, always. Yes. Yeah. I've, I've always had that relationship with Huxley. Yeah. The reason, like, the reason I, uh, I like him so much specifically out of those guys. And I, I mean, there's different people who are on that same path. And I just learned a new terminology for it, actually. Um, Ram Das has a great uh, terminology for it. He's me and uh, a friend were trying to, to figure out what you would call it when somebody is maybe more aware of this path that they're on, as opposed to somebody who is completely unaware of that path. And what they could, the Buddhists believe that like uh, the Dalai Lama is always born on the path way ahead, right? Each iteration or incarnation, that being understands where it is in comparison to somebody who is, you know, you could say they're a new soul is that's like a um, yeah. kind of a pop, pop cultural reference. But what I think uh, sums it up best is some people have thinner veils mm. and uh, in the mystical cultures, the ones that embraced mysticism, that would mean that you are closer to finishing whatever this is or finishing this revolution of it. Yeah. So like uh, a Buddhist would say, well, this person maybe has one or two lives to live. You know, their, their veil is so thin, their ascension is imminent. Right. Yeah. And that would be your, I look at that as your, that white light that's attached to the divine ground, which is reassimilate into the ground. And then something happens perhaps that is, another stage of this kind of reality who knows what goes on doesn't matter mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. the, the understanding of that principle i think is interesting where you can, you can have people who are and then it also i don't know if you've ever met somebody who is not being responsible with ayahuasca or one of these like very potent uh plant medicines there's a truth to the thinness of the veil there too because <laughs> it could be used in another way say that you're you are dangerously close to losing touch with reality. Yeah. As in you're no longer anchored down to this place like you should be because you're not being responsible with that molecule. And, you know, that's what they say, you know, that, that it can, um, particularly with LSD, that was sort of the thought that, that people who overuse it or misuse it can go into a sort of irreparable state of psychosis. Is that, is that sort of what you're, you're getting at? Uh, well, that's a urban myth. The, uh, <laughs> they used to say you do a certain amount of acid, then you're clinically insane or some ridiculous yeah. thing like that, whatever that means. But yeah, the same type of idea where if you're using a powerful psychogenic like that, like I was, there's a podcast with a guy, <laughs> if we're going to get really crazy here, uh, 
who I don't know how familiar with uh, DMT, but I guess this guy was doing DMT, smoking DMT, which is the, that's the psychogenic compound in ayahuasca. Mm -hmm. So when you smoke it, the experience is short. It's only like six minutes, but you can, you can have a whole life in that world in six minutes. Time is not relevant there the way it is here. So this guy was doing DMT or smoking DMT every day for like months. Mm -hmm. And he was having these encounters with all these entities. And uh, eventually, I guess, he, because uh, when you smoke DMT, it's a lot of people report a sensation of like leaving the planet entirely. And they're out in this kind of, I don't know, netherworld or whatever. And he he encountered a group of beings that had basically like set up a uh, <laughs> kind of, a, it sounds like an intervention, but it, it, a group of them basically came up and said, look, man, you got to settle down. You're, uh, you know, you, you've been in here way, way, way too much. You're not here to learn. You're here to, I don't know what you're doing here. You don't know what you're doing here, but you're in serious danger of becoming completely lost. <laughs> so go home and live your life and, you know, don't come here every day. Don't come here for a few years, even, you know, yeah. like they, they really spelled it out for him and kind of, uh, these were DMT elves apparently. And a, a group of them bounced him out of the DMT realm and told him not to come back for a while because he'd been abusing it. That's the story. <laughs> an, an intervention within the experience. <laughs> within the experience. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And, um, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not, uh, I haven't been brave enough to attempt that. I don't, I just, it's a hell of a lot of, it's hard, I think to, uh, you know, if you're going to go there and do that stuff, it's, you got to be prepared to, to face down demons and all sorts of stuff. And I think I'm getting to a good place, but, uh, you know, maybe when I'm a little older and I've, uh, I've run into a stagnant place where I need to open myself up to that again, possibly. But, um, other than that, yeah. Uh, doing those types of things every day, <laughs> not responsible. The other thing it made me think of Nathan was that, um, I know it was, it was actually offered to me fairly early on of going off work that, that there are clinics in, at least in British Columbia that offer ketamine infusion treatments, mm. um, for post-traumatic stress. Mm -hmm. And that was offered to me and I declined it, but I know that that is a, a paid, I mean, I think it, when it was offered to me, it was actually a trial that they had offered to, to put me into. Mm -hmm. But there was full coverage paid for for this experience. Right. And I don't know how many treatments they were offering there. I, as an ER nurse, saw ketamine being used um, for procedural sedations in the ER, you know, for mm -hmm. putting someone's shoulder back in place or cardioverting someone. Mm -hmm. And uh, it never, it never looked like a, a pleasant experience. It always looked like a fairly scary, uncomfortable experience. But that's something that is continuing to evolve as a as a treatment modality and and one that where there is coverage for healthcare workers and first responders. So, um, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and the results from ketamine, especially the ketamine NAD plus infusions that they're mm -hmm. doing for, uh, I think it was, I I want to say opiates and alcohol. They were having the most success with, but psilocybin, some of these trials are like the, the, the doctors look at the results and they can't, they can't believe it. They've mm. never, I mean, it's so, yeah, I, I think, uh, I think that's in our future, you know, the next 
five, 10 years, you're probably going to see, you might even see psilocybin become a covered treatment modality along with uh, some kind of talk therapy. I, I would so. be surprised. Yeah. I agree with you. Totally. Um, so yeah, we got pretty derailed there. Crawl out of the rabbit hole that we just yeah. <laughs> dove into. <laughs> and we had folks, we had a big talk before this one about trying to stay on track. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it didn't, but that's fine. I mean, that's, if you don't like that kind of talk, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to tell you. Uh, but anyway, we'll get back on, uh, on, on track here. And, uh, what do you got going, Corey? For your... <laughs> well, this this next book feels like a complete non sequitur in the conversation, <laughs> which it is, but that's okay because it's going to take us down a whole whole other path. I think. Okay. Um, it is the third book uh, that I read chronologically in terms of these compared to the other two books, but and it is also I would say number one in terms of its impact on me. So it's kind of appropriate that I'm touching on this one last. Uh, the book is called Complex PTSD from Surviving to Thriving by Pete Walker. This came out in 2013. And the title of it is so stale. And mm -hmm. I wish I wish Pete titled it something maybe a little bit more inspiring. And but it is the most accessible, relatable, easy to read book about um and practical book about PTSD, complex PTSD, which I'm going to talk about in just a second here. And then with practical tools of how to uh, combat, combat negative thinking and sort of get yourself out of these cycles of, of sort of spiraling, spiraling thinking. It's just so accessible and hands-on. So first of all, complex PTSD, we're not talking about acute PTSD or PTSD from a singular traumatic experience, um, you know, witnessing a trauma or witnessing a uh, active violence. It can be that, but complex PTSD re refers to a more long-term effect, uh, oftentimes rooted from childhood or early life, traumas that have compounded. Would this be what um, most soldiers reporting PTSD, would they have complex PTSD? Or? In, in Certainly in some cases. Okay. It, it's not referring to though, like, you know, I was, I was, I witnessed one singular event it's usually sort of a more um, protracted, compounded life experience. Okay. Um, and uh, he gets into it being quite um, particularly rooted in 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 childhood stuff um, and developmental trauma that can occur, stuff with authority, um, but also sort of trauma that you know where it's it's more black and white. Like I saw this happen, or this happened to me. What he what he's getting at here, and there's a couple of areas that I wanted to touch on, was the fascinating discussion about emotional flashbacks, and this is again unique to complex PTSD that that a an interaction or a you know an experience with another person where it's where there's conflict or where there is uh, a look or a response that you are given that that can can without without triggering a visual flashback of the trauma that occurred, it can muster up the same uh, physiological response of stress, of anxiety, um, as the initial event that happened. Wow. So, you know, the feeling of being, the feeling of, of being shamed or being ridiculed or being disciplined and that 
eliciting sort of the same kind of a feeling that it did when when you were a kid. Man, that is uh, that is absolutely terrifying. Yeah, and and so I think you know what it, what it explained for me was the idea that feeling a certain way, at, I'll, I'll say at work, you know where, and I think I was I think I was personally look dealing with both things. So having specific trauma experiences at the workplace where I would have a reminder of those, of those experiences that happened a year or two ago, where there would be like a sensory cue or a visual cue where like another person comes in and there's lots of blood or something like that. But also the feeling of feeling uh, helpless or feeling anxious or feeling out of control could elicit an anxiety within myself or a tension within myself that was actually kind of cueing me back to times that I felt like that as a kid, I think. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and, and is that a, is that a common occurrence amongst most people who have that uh, complex PTSD? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'll, I'll just read you a little, little piece about emotional flashbacks first here. Emotional flashbacks are perhaps the most noticeable and characteristic feature of complex PTSD. Survivors of traumatizing abandonment are extremely susceptible to painful emotional flashbacks. Emotional flashbacks are a sudden and often prolonged regression to the overwhelming feeling states of being abused or abandoned. These feeling states can include overwhelming fear, shame, alienation, rage, grief, depression. They also include unnecessary triggering of our flight or f- fight or flight instincts. It's important to state here that emotional flashbacks, like most things in life, are not all or none. Flashbacks can range from intensity, from subtle to horrific. They can also vary in duration, ranging from moments to weeks on end, where they delve into what many therapists call a regression. So, you know, I think I think for me at times, um, that feeling of there was a lot of violence at work. There was a lot of, and we've in recent episodes have talked about about, you know, where it wasn't necessarily physical violence, but, but verbal aggression from patients or, or family members say how that could stir up the same feeling, uh, as something that happened at school or something with the bully or something with authority. And it wouldn't necessarily take you back to, to again, the memory of that, but these are the same feelings that, that, that sort of were conjured up then. And then with that anxiety, with that sort of physiological discomfort, the door is then opened to um, negative self-talk and the inner critic. And he, Pete Walker, the author of this book, talks a lot about the inner critic, um, the, that tape that is constantly playing. And you and I have talked about that for, for both of us, that, that the, the critic sort of knows, knows everything about us, knows our buttons, and pushes them really well. And if, if, if you are sort of stirred into a, a state of anxiety or restlessness or fear or depression that the, that inner critic can just sort of take off. Mm-hmm. So he, he presents some, some really helpful tools of, you know, ways to how to talk back to yourself, how to, to support yourself in talking back to that critic. Um, you know, I gave, I think I've, I've given this example in meetings, but maybe it's a, a good one to give here that, you know, thinking about, anxiety around which picking a daycare for my son okay. and feeling like I'm going to 
that my inner critic was telling me you're you know you're putting your son in 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 harm's way you're neglecting him by putting him into daycare um you're setting him up to potentially be you know molested or to have adults who you don't know or trust look after him and the way i combated that and i learned that this from that from from this book was to literally tell myself when i'm when i'm thinking about that like i have good judgment i trust my own judgment i can read people i have the skills and the ability to make the choice that is best for my son and i will do the best that i can to make that choice and so like literally talking back and pushing that inner critic away which sounds so hokey but you've got this tape that's no. playing negatively and if you don't push back against that um it can just get absolutely carried away it can drive you insane it can and and it, it can lead you towards um, more anxiety more depression more restlessness more negative light harmful life choices so just learning to sort of and he describes it as you know self-parenting self-mothering and self-fathering <laughs> where you are you were the one who's like building yourself up and supporting that inner voice and and challenging that that critic mm -hmm. yeah i like to think of it as being your own best friend yes like, exactly like if and, you and literally saying talking to that best friend <laughs> exactly exactly you don't know i i yeah quite regularly there's a couple of me going on inside my head and uh one is the more autopilot and it is more more prone to you know slip into negative thinking without you know just doing it on kind of more like a default setting yeah but i've come a long way in training myself to to challenge those thoughts as quick as possible yeah and you, you don't even have to don't have you know you can be nice about it <laughs> oh, yeah okay okay nathan i see what's going on here you know what uh Where's the evidence for that uh, statement? What's uh, says who, you know, that kind of cognitive behavioral therapy type stuff. Yes. And I think you should be nice in that, in that voice that you talk back to it. And yeah. Um, Otherwise you get into this like back and forth that uh, turns into it. You can fuel the fire with that uh, technique as well. If you're not careful. Yes. You know, there's, there's lots of in here about how, how complex PTSD and trauma is connected to um, self-soothing, you know, addictive behavior as a self initially as a self-soothing mechanism, as a way of of um, trying to ease that emotional flashback, a way to ease that that uh, you know feeling of of anxiety or agitation or 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 fear. And again, yeah. I, for, for myself in the workplace, I think that that was so so rooted in that. Okay, so the the other fascinating thing that I learned um, from this book, and we've talked about in in our caduceus meetings, we all know fight or flight, or we should know that fairly well, just as like a, a basic sort of human response to a to a stressor or a stimuli. Pete Walker really puts in the third F as fawn, mm -hmm. and that was one that I didn't know before. You know the 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 tendency that some of us have to sort of to placate, to smooth things over, to, you know, instead of, um, you know, freezing and hiding or running away, you know, you try to pet the lion <laughs> or try to, <laughs> try to feed the lion to make it happy. And then it may right. not eat you. Right. And he's in this one chapter of the book, he's talking about, you know, the fawn or flight response as a, as a, as a human characteristic, mm. the title that he gives it interestingly, <laughs> fascinatingly 
is the super nurse. Okay. There you go. That's you. The f- that's me. The, the fawn flight type is most typically seen in the busy holic parent, the nurse, the administrative assistant who works from dawn until bedtime, providing for the needs of the household, the hospital, or the company. He compulsively takes care of everyone else's needs with hardly a gesture towards his own. The fawn or flight is sometimes a misguided Mother Teresa type who escapes the pain of self-abandonment by seeing herself as the perfect selfless caregiver further distancing herself from her own pain by obsessive compulsively rushing from one person in need to another. Some fawn flight flight clients also become OCD-like in cleanaholic tendencies. One of my interns told me that her fawn flight client had a dozen color-coded toothbrushes from various (laughs) micro-cleaning tasks in her family's bathroom or kitchen. Some project their perfectionism onto others. They can appoint themselves as honorary advisors or over, overburden others with their advice. However, it behooves fond flights to learn that caring is not always about fixing. This is especially true when the person we are trying to help is in emotional pain. Many times, all, per, all a person needs is empathy, acceptance, and an opportunity to verbally vent. Moreover, some mood states also need time to resolve. Loving people when they are feeling bad is a powerful kind of caring. So... The super nurse. I mean, and I, I, I was certainly one of them. I've known a good number of them mm-hmm. where your needs go out the window. Your needs are, are not even secondary. They're, they're just non-existent. And, right. and for me, the fawning to say, yeah, I'll take on that extra shift. I'll stay later. I'll do the overtime. I'll look after these 16 patients that are stacked up in a hallway and I won't even, you know, bark to administration about it or, or, or whatever that may be that need to, to people please and to fawn in, in the presence of a stressor, it became, it became so entangled with an emotional flashback and that constant feeling of like stress and anxiety in my body that, and I was so afraid to face it and to say no, that the easiest thing was to medicate it. Right. The most natural, obvious thing, obvious thing was to medicate it. Yeah. Well, that makes perfect sense. Your tendency towards this super nurse kind of persona, and then you're asking something of yourself that is basically not not tenable, not long term Mm -hmm. anyways. Therefore, the only way to continue on is to medicate. Yeah. And you know what? This is what I'm going back to our Maya Salovitz episode where I, I had kind of asked her a question about like pre-screening healthcare workers. Mm-hmm. And she had said, I think you would exclude a lot of really wonderful people from the mix mm-hmm. if you pre-screened everyone and said, no, you can't be a nurse. <laughs> and I most definitely agree with her. Yeah, But I do think tying it all together, it's a conversation that should be had in universities. Yes. Or, or in high schools or elementary schools even. But at the very least, in universities where people are directly going into a profession that will put them at risk. Yeah, it's a tough one. Because how do you get people to understand the danger they're in? Like yeah. it, it's, not, it's a very difficult thing to articulate. It's very personal. And I mean, to have it work effectively, you'd have to somehow 
communicate to people during the application process almost because you'd want to say, look, do you accept the risks of your, you know, you appear to be a, uh, the computer has identified you through an algorithm as a super nurse or something like that, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, what are you going to do uh, in these situations? And I, I mean, awareness is always better than not aware. Yep. So I guess you, you just having that there, it would be a work in progress. It would be a hell of a thing to implement, but uh, I don't think there's any harm in it. I mean, I sure would have liked to, I mean, I think many of us go in, we choose paths that, I mean, you don't want everybody trying to prevent everything, but if you know that you're going to, into a specific area of danger and there seems to be a common occurrence of, you know, like what's happening to nurses right now is the best example I could think of. I mean, there should be more being done in the beginning to address that for sure. Yeah. 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 And, and, and we can't, when I say we, um, society or a health authority can't take responsibility for everyone's, you know, psychological background and can't sort of try to rectify, you know, every piece of, of childhood trauma or PTSD that, that preceded their employment <laughs> like you just <laughs> that would just be impossible and unrealistic and and just too much mm -hmm. but um i think to understand that 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 people are coming into that profession or into that shift or that experience with with the context that that makes them who they all of these things that make up the fabric of their psychology and of their mind and their reactions and that not everyone like can just sort of brush it off mm -hmm. and that is what is expected of people and and it, again it kind of comes back to peer support it comes back to um to discussion yeah but again i, I that's something I, I i wish i had have learned much much earlier in my career for sure completely understandable and uh, we can do a better job there i know we can i did want to mention since you're you chose a ptsd format uh, book to mm -hmm. to end with there uh, for people who are interested, the the company that I uh, started, Obsidian Support Services, uh, Corey's going to help me out with that. And uh, Corey will be facilitating a new group that is going to be, or groups, depending on how many people sign up, it's going to be centered on PTSD. And uh, it will be the same as the other type of groups in that it's a peer support based model. It's mm -hmm. not a hierarchy. It's not a top down. It's not a here. I'm the expert. Listen to me thing. It's a bunch of people getting together online, exchanging ideas about what works for PTSD or just talking about what's not working at the time and uh, finding support in others because that's that, uh, that's that community that we're talking about and we're trying to build. So yeah, yeah. the Corey's going to take that on and uh, we're going to start that in the new year. Mm -hmm. We'll have something up and going by, uh, I'd like to by the end of January. I think we can make that happen. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. So I, I thought I'd throw that in there. I'm glad that you did, Nathan. I, it's, it is, I think it's something that we're still learning about, that society is still learning about, that addiction medicine is still, is still learning about. You know, I look at the fact that workers' compensation organizations in our country and in our province are now understanding and accepting that there's a correlation between PTSD 
complex PTSD and, and addiction and are, are supportive of that. That in itself is a milestone. And it is. Th- yeah. That, and that's that good is, to see. it's good to see it. It's a relatively new, a new sort of approach that is being taken there because I, I think it's what we're, what we've learned is that people come again, people have had such a vast array of experiences that, that got them to that place. Yeah, absolutely. But there are, there's threads of commonality that can be, I mean, we could take advantage of these things in, in community with community support. So yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that. What I'll do is just uh, mention this last book here again. uh, Thanks to Peter for pointing this one out. It looks good. I've only, you know, went through the first little bit, but it's this author, uh, Carl Eric Fisher. Fisher is the last name. And uh, it's called The Urge, Our History of Addiction. And it looks like this guy spent about 10 years just really going deep on all these, uh, you know, you talk about the old campaigns uh, and uh, patterns of drug, uh, they, they like to call drug ep- epidemics, um, and to see how far back this pattern that we've been in goes is fascinating. And this guy really nails it down and points out some uh, tremendously important science along the way. Uh, so yeah, I've got a ways to go on that one, but I, I do want to mention it because I think it's going to be, uh, it's going to be up there on my list. So take a look at that one. It's called the urge Our history of addiction by Carl Eric Fisher. We'll just give that a mention and thanks again, Peter. Yeah. And you know, I'll certainly say to our listeners, we would love to know other books that have got you, got you through a difficult time or, or helped you learn something about yourself um, helped in your sort of your progress with recovery or healing, whatever that may be. And it like, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be a textbook. It doesn't have to be heavy into psychology. It could be a novel. And like, there are a handful of novels that I thought about, about bringing in today too, that it would be for a different discussion, but, um, but yeah, whatever, whatever has sort of helped you along the way, we'd love to hear about it too. Yeah, absolutely. Any piece of writing, a piece of poem, maybe something you wrote, um, it's, it's amazing. It, 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 sometimes it's, it comes down to just two or three lines, right. Mm-hmm. That, uh, that hit you at the right time. Yeah, but, absolutely. Uh, but yeah, this was fun, man. This, uh, I like this good idea. We should maybe do this, uh, I don't know, periodically of some sort. I think it's a good idea. Yep. Yeah. All right. We'll leave it there, folks. Uh, hope everybody's having a happy holidays and, uh, we'll probably see you again in the new year. I think so for sure. And I don't think we're going to have an episode in between. (laughs) So we'll just say that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right, everybody. Talk to you later. See you soon.